The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And joining me again today is David Duxbury. Hi, David. Hello there, Dave. Uh, this uh, this uh, episode, we're going to be looking at a rather large topic, uh, uh, quite a, an interesting topic, and that is the Curtis P40 uh, in RNZAF service. So we've got uh, we've got a lot of stuff to get through here, but it's going to be a really interesting episode, I think. Don't you think? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope some people. I'm, I'm, I know it's, the type's got a few fans out there. Oh, it has. It has. That's for sure. Um, I guess the best place to start is right at the beginning, talking about the introduction of the P40. How did we come about uh, acquiring the P40 for the RNZAF, and and what was the sort of political situation, and uh, yeah, and the allocation from from US stocks and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, of course, um, if. Anybody with a Vegas interest probably probably knows that they did come into New Zealand, the first ones, in 1942, as a result of um, the government getting very um, agitated about the the encroaching Japanese up north. And there was paddock stations all around. And they managed to wheedle the, uh, about I think it was about 72, I think they had, Britain had promised to divert them from her uh, shipments to the Middle East, I think it was. Okay. And um, we, anyway, we, we got 44 of them before they had to regretfully cut off further supplies because of critical situations elsewhere. So it was, you know, these aircraft, although they, a lot of people don't think they're the best fighter in the world, they were the only one you could actually get at that time at short notice. And so we weren't going to uh, look a gift horse in the mouth, so we accepted them with open arms. And of course, Australia. Australia was receiving some at the same time, and they were flooding into uh, places like China and um, the, uh, particularly the Middle East. They were very in high demand there too. So we were quite lucky to get them at all, I think. Well, that's true, and I think it should be um, mentioned that this is our first 
uh, fighter aircraft of the war, and um, prior to that, any fighters that we had were old biplanes from World War One. Or uh, I think the the most modern fighter that we'd had w- were the Gloucester Greaves. So, well, the only one really, de- um, really de- deserving the name, I think. Yeah, yeah, they were short, exactly. short, sharp, and noisy, and quite fast for their time, which was, uh, of course, early twenties. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and of course we hadn't had them in service for a while, and so New oh, Zealand. Although they'd, well, they'd, they'd been flying them up to about 1938, I think. Right, right, but of course by 1942, the, you know, you're not going to no, use them again. No, uh, no. It, I mean, <laughs> was it two or three Grebes are hardly a fighter force? Well, they, they, so, they, one of them was smashed to pieces, so there were only the two single seaters, and uh, I don't think they had guns for them anyway. They, I don't think they ever used head guns on them in the RZF, as far as I recall. Oh, is that right? I didn't realise that. Yes, I think uh, I think Bill Dinny reckon they never were never armed. They could have been armed. They had provision for it, but they just yep. we just had no occasion to do it. They just used to tear around on it. I think. Oh, mm-hmm. Right. So these were our first uh, our first fighters during the war, and uh, as you say, um, you can't look a gift horse in the mouth. But quite frankly, they would have been hugely uh, anticipated and 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 welcomed by the RNZF, I'm sure, because they were. You know, a very good fighter at the time. The, the well, P-40. yeah, that's right. They were sort of state of the art. Um, but, you know, people have pointed out that they weren't the the best ones, but they they were all we could get, and they were still a relatively modern aircraft, quite heavily armed too. Yeah, and and also um, very rugged, and they had a good range as well. So that's right. And the other thing was that the, well, the um, to give you an idea of the secrecy of the time, it was pointed out that there were photographs appearing. In British uh, official photographs, I think it was that that, sh- that showed Kitty Hawks and showing that they had six wing guns, and the um, the government ordered those censored because because oh. that was fairly new having six guns in the wings, and uh, yet they, they in New Zealand they ordered them to blot out the visible gun barrels in any published photographs of them. Okay, but that, but of course they were being sent into the uh, Dutch East Indies. They were pouring in there too. The Americans sent, uh, I think the Americans sent three, or f- two or three hundred, and up to the um, Dutch East Indies. But none of them came back. But then, and of course, the Japanese captured quite a swag of them in, in uh, Java, I think it was. So they knew how many guns they had. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> right there. <laughs> in fact, they flew some of them. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, when it comes to the allocation, um, you mentioned that our first 44 came from British... Uh, British orders, basically. Uh, Lend-Lease or Lend-Lease. Lend-Lease orders. They were, in fact, they were... were they last time? Yeah, it must have been Lend-Lease, yeah. Some of the, probably some of the first Lend-Lease aircraft properly allocated under that system. Right. But they... Um, but, and so we, it was basically out of Britain's orders that we got them. They were, diverse, they were diverted by the British government. It wasn't an American decision particularly, although I, you know, I don't think they minded that they went to us. As far as they're concerned, the New Zealanders were British anyway. Right. Yeah, and, they were, and they were paid for by the British, in the, or they would be. Well, it went, put it this way, it went on to their account. Oh, right, okay. And in fact, it was pointed, brought up at the end of the war too, that the, a lot of the aircraft we got were still on British accounts, like um, just about all the Hudsons, for instance, we got were on British account, as were those first Kitty Hawks, and there might have been a few others, but... You know, apart, you know, British aircraft obviously were on those accounts, but um, so so does that mean uh, accounts uh, were kept in Washington of all, of all lend-lease aircraft well, to whoever was had or you know, arranged to or had been allocated them? Like China was a big, well, it was allocated a lot at this stage, and Soviet Russia. Yeah, they had uh, various Americans went too sure whether they'd pay for them or not, but um, 
<laughs> in a sense, they thought, well, as long as they're killing Germans or Japanese, it's okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, of course. So, so with the with the arrangement with the British, does that mean that at the end of the war we owed Britain that money, or did they have to be? Re- did we, you know when they were sold off uh, as scrap? Did did that money have to go to Britain? Or? Oh, I don't think they worried about that as scrap. They weren't very worth very much at all, I don't think. And uh, right. I'd honestly don't know how quite they settled that. Okay. But um, okay. but America was quite happy to. Well, they said, well, you know, one of you's got to pay for it, so. Whether Britain, of course, uh, New Zealand did point out that they had, you know, had, um, more or less cancelled the Wellington order at the outbreak of war and um, transferred them to the RF. They could have brought that up, but yeah, again, yeah. again, that never. I don't think New Zealand ever actually paid for them anyway. <laughs> they may have just, right. they may have been starting arrangements to order them, but um, right, okay. I, couldn't, I wouldn't like to speculate on exactly how that all worked out. But it, it, wherever money's involved, there's always somebody keeping keeping tallies and uh, who owes who what. Yeah, absolutely. It's always, absolutely. It always has to be sorted out at the end. Right. One, one way or another. So um, that, that first 44, you mentioned they came from uh, a batch that were headed to the Middle East. Now, one of the questions that's come up from a listener, uh, Andrew Sutton, is he asked about, uh, in Charles Darby's book, RNZ After the First Decade, there was mention that some of them arrived in New Zealand in desert colour scheme. Uh, you know, we're in desert colours. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I have read, you know, like you, that some people reckon that they saw ones that had desert camouflage, but um, yeah, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Uh, I, I, I never, I kitty hawks, I've seen a recent imports. <laughs> um, right. I've never seen an original. But uh, yeah, it's possible, but um, as all the pictures I've seen of the, well, they did release quite a few pictures of the, those early kitty hawks. A lot of them, in fact, I think to you know boost local morale. You know, there's great pictures of 14, 15, and 16 squadron P40Es roaring around the skies. Yes. All in there, what appears to be the original war paint, which was very British-looking. Uh, we're told it was American paints with slightly different hues, but that doesn't matter. And uh, with British-type roundels. Yep. And uh, and when they arrived, they had British serial numbers on them. And 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 also, of course, they had the uh, Army Air Corps serial numbers numbered on a plate somewhere they were yeah they were leanly sea craft that's right yeah uh but as to i can't see desert camouflage ones actually being issued it's, it's, uh, even the ones that went we took over in tonga a bit later they um not sure what they were in fact some pictures they look like they were olive drab but other ones they definitely had the british type camouflage on and they used RAF serial numbers too and right, they were, okay. in fact, they were from very similar batches to uh, the ones we received too. You know, they were built about the same time. Okay. So altogether, uh, through the war, um, well, up till 1944, uh, New Zealand received uh, 297 P40s uh, entering service, and they ranged from the P40E, which was the the original uh, 44, uh, were P40E ones, and uh, we ended up with P40Ks, P40Ms, P40Ns of varying different uh, models within those. And the one L, of course. And the one L, yeah. There's a special case. <laughs> now you you wanted to mention the L. Can you do you want to talk about the L now? Okay. Well, most people will know that most P40s were delivered with Allison engines, with a single speed, single stage supercharger. Um, but of course, they also started. Um, ordering um, Merlin engine ones when the uh, 
when Merlin went into production in the USA. Yep. I think it went to production in 1941, and the first aircraft types that were fitted were the P-40s. And that was the that became the uh, F model, wasn't it? F was the first yeah. yep. uh, Merlin one. Um, and and following on from that was the L model, which was uh, was practically the same except uh, it had the Merlin engine instead of the Ellison. And in fact, the model we got was an L dash one, which was pretty much. Let me think now. It was a long fuselage one, that's right. I think some of the last Fs had the long fuselage. Yeah, partway through, partway, partway through the production of P-40s, because, of course, they actually had two separate... Well, they were built in the same factory, but I think they had two separate lines of production. The Ellison ones and the Merlin ones. And um, and the E model with the Ellison was superseded by the K. That was the next production model. There was no uh, G, H, I or J. For reasons best not gone into, and the F model, the first, the Merlin ones, was superseded by the L. So they followed the last F on that line would be followed by the first L dash one. Okay. So there were two. The two they were in um, parallel production basically, and we just happened to get this L. And of course, it should never have come here. It was a complete mistake. It turned up, and uh, I've, although I've never read anything about its actual arrival, I can sort of guess because it was known that we couldn't operate them, we had no spares back up, no engine spares whatsoever, no manuals. And it was just, how it got to New Zealand is obviously some sort of a mix-up on the docks or something. So, um, right. But apparently they did assemble it and fly it, because I've actually seen logbook entries of it. Oh, OK. The late Ross, Ross McPherson even had a photograph of it uh, oh, wow. many years ago, but he, he, he loaned it to somebody and it never came back. So, um, And it had oh, the number right. on it and everything. He was really, wow. really brass off about that. Funny yeah. enough, the um, the aircraft that uh, should have been in its stead in the first place was a, an M model, which had the Allison, of course, and that arrived about six months later uh, from America, possibly with apologies. Uh, <laughs> by which time, it, that was in September, because I think the L arrived in March 43. It was quite early in the piece with the later, later P-40s, and... Um, as I said, I don't know how long they... They probably didn't keep it very long or fly it very much, but they probably just thought it was interesting. And, and uh, probably the only uh, spare parts they had for it were spark plugs, which may or may not have been interchangeable with the Ellison ones. But right. I don't think they would have flown many hours on it. But, um, and eventually it must have been boxed up in its original crate, I imagine, and um, sent off. And anyway, this this M arrived, and it, it was another one out of order, of course, in the sequence. It was yep. Yep. all the M's, M models, M for mother, came out in early 43 for the most part and um, I think the last one's pretty arrived about April but or May somewhere about then and of course they were some of the major models that went up originally with the early K's up to the up to well now anyway this right. this late 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 arriving M arrived and of course it, by that time the N's were already arriving pouring into New Zealand and by the time this Last M model, this three was 30, it got the number 3180, so it was quite late in proceedings. But it was a direct brother and sister of the early ones, you know. It actually, I think its serial numbers fitted between the, you know, it's American serial fitted between some of our earlier ones, so it was, a, okay. it was very, it was in that batch. Oh, right. And okay. it just went straight to service, but I don't think it went, ever went overseas. I think it just stayed in New Zealand that month. Right. 
submit battle on the on that uh, interlude of the intrusion of the Packard Merlin engine P40s into the South Pacific. They did they did have some at Guadalcanal, the Americans, but just okay. as a one squadron. All right, okay. Well, that's that's interesting. If we just go back now, um, back to the P40Es, those first ones that arrived, um, NZ3001 was brought on charge uh, on the 2nd of April 1942 at Hobsonville, and um, so... Really, it's only five months after Japan entered the war, or four months really, uh, after Japan entered the war, and uh, uh, so w we suddenly had fighters arriving, and they started equipping new squadrons. Now, the first one to be equipped was Number Fourteen Squadron, which formed at Ohakia and soon after moved to uh, Masterton, and that formed out of pilots who'd come back from up in Singapore, and mo uh, most of the the pilots, when that squadron formed, had either, either been with Number Four Eight Eight Squadron or Two Four Three Squadron uh, RAF, and uh, they they also got a few uh, new pilots on the squadron too when they formed. But um, they be they became the famous Fighting Fourteenths. In actual fact, when it reformed at Masterton, it was still called Four Eighty Eight. Um although that threw up a problem in that it was supposed to be an article, one of the Article 15 squadrons, and uh, which would normally be under Royal Air, fully Royal Air Force control. And, as, and the RAF said, well, do you want to, uh, what do they say, do you intend to use this number anymore? And, and, um, and they said, well, we're going to keep the, the squadron here. And they said, well, we'll have to take the number off you because it's no longer an Article 15 if it's, if it's a home squadron. For, for the defence of New Zealand, it's, it's your own squadron, so you just okay. you just can't use 488. And of course, when they took it off, us, they gave it to a new one in Britain, with, equipped with bow fighters, of course, not right, fighters. right. So yeah. and so the yeah the first ones equipped were well, in fact, the first ones assembled, I think, were sent to Tauranga, and they used it to write up some pilots' notes because that that was a bit of a problem with the our shipments. They didn't seem to have much in the way of manuals and things with them, and they had no pilots' notes. And um, they, well, in fact, the test pilot who I actually spoke to, one uh, E.A. Willis, I think it was, said yep. that the, the first test flight on one, he realised there was something seriously wrong with the trim, and it turns out that they sh it had no guns fitted at this time. Apparently the guns were shipped separately in many occasions. Oh, right. And, and packed in grease and stuff, and you had to sort of fit them on the wings. And um, it said, warning, don't, um, if... if if the gun's not fitted, uh, replace with um, you know, ballast or ballast the aircraft properly to get the C and G in the correct place. And of course, he took off. Yep. Nobody seemed to have noticed this, and he took off and soon found out that there was a bit of a handful with um, this. I, I don't know whether it was aft trim or fore trim, but whatever it was, he, uh, he quickly landed. Oh, wow. And they had to re-ballast it and uh, have a look and see if there's anything else they'd missed out. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but but normally, normally they would have... Um, I'm sure, in fact, a lot of the later ones were equipped with the guns at the factory, and although often they, um, well, I might mention that later, but the um, you know, one model came out with only four guns fitted, and you got the options of fitting the other two at your discretion. Okay. Mm. Ah, right, okay. <coughs> so, when you say that those first ones went to Tauranga, that would have been to the Central Flying That's right, yeah. That I think, was just, I think it was just one aircraft, I can't remember which one, but the other, other ones went to Ahakia, and we used to set up a 
fighter OTU there. Most, right, mostly, yep, the, mostly equipped with harbors actually, but they did have these first Kitty Hawks went there about April, April forty two. That was right. And those new pilots on the squadrons that I mentioned, uh, they went through the OTU. They did a very quick course at at the OTU. They'd just come straight out of flying school, uh, went through went through the OTU, and then onto the new squadrons. Um, something like that. Yes, yes. Yeah. In fact, I think the very first courses for the OTU actually were pilots that come back from. A lot of them were people that had come back from the Far East and hadn't even flown over there. And they were getting a bit rusty and they put some of them through. And in fact, it was really just refresher flying the first course, I think. But then they started putting through new pilots from, from the flying training schools. Okay. But fortunately, they had enough pilots to form uh, available from, you know, from the 48 Squadron mob to form for a reform 488 later. I think they, after about six weeks, they renamed it with a new number. Number 14 yep. and number 15 was next at Fenuapai, uh, 1st of June. And that had mostly new pilots. And then 16 was formed at Atahakia and moved to um, Woodburn in August. And they, But they were all initially under strength. And they only had enough, because the 44 aircraft was, they, they were, well actually there's no more coming in for a while anyway. So they were pretty keen, pretty, pretty brave to form three squadrons with only 44 aircraft. Yes, the, yeah. the RAF itself would have about 16 aircraft per squadron and maybe 20 pilots, 21 pilots. Um, we only could, we only had enough for 12 for each squadron plus, what's that, 12, uh, 12 threes to 36 and that gives you eight more and they thought the rest would equip the OTU. Well, they soon wrote off a couple so they were down to, you know, with, with aircraft like Kitty Hawks, being flown by people that hadn't weren't very experienced, and in fact nobody had much experience on them. The um, accidents were inevitable, yep. and um, and they did they they whittled them down slowly in forty two. Their, their, their accident rate wasn't phenomenal, but it was quite steady. <laughs> but uh, <this laughs> well, one story I do remember was Peter Gifford, who you may have heard of. He um, yes, quite a well known fellow in in um, four eighty eight and in. 14 squadron. Yep. He says he, because he had flown buffaloes a bit, and you know, he, he probably had his hand in. But when he was flying these jolly P40Es, uh, they had seen, I think they had seen some in, in Java, the first P40s they saw. Uh, getting a bit of a beating there, but for various reasons. But um, anyway, he, he got flying in this thing, and I think it was on his first flight in one of these ones at a Harkia, and. Um, he landed with his undercarriage up. Oh. Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't badly damaged, and he was soon back in the air. But he, his logbook was endorsed um, lack of experience. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're fairly understanding because they you know, fighter pilots were in fairly short supply at that stage, yeah. and it wasn't an uncommon yeah. thing to happen. And uh, but anyway, a bit later he redeemed himself, and he managed to get another P40E up to thirty-one thousand feet which was okay. about the maximum I think they claimed for it and he, for a brief period there he had the honour of having flown a P-40E in New Zealand higher and lower than any other pilot. <laughs> but not the same aircraft. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he, oh, he chuckled about that one. <laughs> and another, or another thing worth uh, pointing out too is a lot of people don't realise that often these aircraft weren't fully equipped on arrival and these ones were no exception. They had no gun sights. Well, the guns, well they had gun sights but they had no reticles. Okay. For them, and in fact, they didn't get them for months and months. So they had to basically fly them originally, and, and any gunnery practice was with the old 
You know, they had a little um, ring and bead site along the top of the cow. Yep. And that was all they had to start with until these reticles finally arrived from uh, Britain. I don't know why they didn't have American ones, but perhaps I'm not even sure actually they had. I have a funny idea they might have had British gun sites in there. Because the American gun sites and British, uh, American British ones were quite different to look at, but they were fundamentally very similar and okay. functioning. Now, did, did the squadrons at this early stage do much uh, air-to-air and air-to-ground gunnery practice, or was there ammunition to do that? Yeah, or? they seem to have ammunition. Um, yep. It must have been quite good ammunition, too. Um, I don't, you don't hear of any problems in particular that they had with that. Not, not okay. in New Zealand, but they certainly did in the islands. Where the, who had, this is up in Guadalcanal, where they'd obviously been issued with rubbish ammunition. I think a lot of them reckon it was First World War stuff and it was made to a rather lower standard than was required. And uh, they had terrible problems with um, the first... In fact, right in their first dogfights, they realised that there was something terribly wrong with their ammunition. And they had to... Um, once once they, they had a close look at it, their armourers, and they realised that it was just crap, and, um, or a lot of it was, and they had to go through it carefully, sorting out all the rubbish. It was, it was unfit for use, basically. It was just, jam, it was just jamming the gun. So where did that had that come from overseas sources or was that some of the stuff being uh, manufactured? Here? No, 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 no. We didn't. Man, don't think we manufactured anything like that. I think. Um, okay. We, I mean, if we we may have manufactured three hundred three, but I don't think anything bigger. Okay. As far as I know, but certainly for aircraft, uh, all this, this stuff, the troublesome stuff I'm talking about, was supplied by the Americans at Guadalcanal, right. probably from pre-war, you know, reserve stocks or something. But it was to yeah. a lower standard to use on aircraft or, or anything really. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, I know that the Hudsons uh, also had problems uh, with the ammunition they were they were allocated up there initially too. So probably the same stocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. they they learned that the only way to get decent stuff you could you could throw the whole weight out or you could go through it carefully and, and you know, it varied so much you could get better ones and obviously rubbish ones. They had to make up right. all their own belts again. Right. Okay. Okay. It was just a rob. I think a big problem of America it did have a lot of like most countries often had war stocks, you know, or war uh, emergency supplies, perhaps from the first. Well, Britain, I know Britain kept a lot of stuff from the first world war in stock, and uh, some of it might deteriorate, some of it might be okay, some would be of varying qualities, and this was just caught up in that sort of stuff when America embarked on a, this major war, bigger than it had ever been in before, right. with a possible right. exception of the Civil War. Okay. Don't mention the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. So um, now you mentioned about uh, the the small numbers of uh, fighters allocated to the squadrons. They had twelve per squadron, but they also had uh, was it six, I think it was six Harvards on each of those squadrons. Too, Absolutely, e- exactly correct. They did. In fact, there's photographs of them published in the uh, official photographs taken of them at, at Fenuapai. Actually, when when the fourteen squadron moved up to Fenuapai in February '43, and they took a a lot of good shots of them there, and there they are. Right. There's about eight. Uh, there was about I forget. I think it was eight Kitty Hawks visible in the picture. You know, it's taken nose on from above, and look, and they, all the pilots are spread out along the front of the front Kitty Hawk, and further back there's a lot of ground crew, and then right at the back you can see these three or four big round cowlings sticking up. It's, it's, it's yeah. the Harvards, yep. and they, they were yep. actually very useful. The Harvards, they need dodgy pilots. So the old flight commanders would take them up and see if they were any good or not. Show up very quickly if you're flying with them, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and that was in fact that pertained right through to early '43 when they finally got you know, extra supplies. But they, in fact, by the time the the uh, ones straight from America came, well, 
the first ones came straight from America too, of course, but uh, direct to New Zealand under lean, our lean lease agreement, they were, um, yep. the three squad, existing squadrons had uh, were down to about t nine or ten each. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, there were several others, you know, away getting fixed up after getting dings and deeds and things. Right. And of course, by that stage, uh, uh, that when more air aircraft were coming along, they started forming more squadrons too. Uh, or they mm, almost. Uh, in fact, they. Well, you were mentioning too that yeah, the train. I think they did. They did a lot of training. Uh, I've seen yeah. logbooks of these pilots going through, and they were they were getting up as much as heavier flying as they'd be doing later. So there was plenty of exercises going on, and uh, a lot of gunnery, even if it was only with a ring and bead sight. Um, and, and not you know night flying. Um, Battle formations and uh, yep. and uh, something you might mention too is the um, the fact that they did that New Zealand did seek and was given uh, a selection of New Zealand experienced New Zealand pilots that were sent out by the RAF to help form up our squadrons because we had no real home talent that had any experience whatsoever in this sort of stuff apart from our 48 squadron fellows. Yes, and there was quite a swag of well-known chaps came out. And they all became flight uh, squadron commanders and flight commanders, and it was something that the, lo the new boys could look up to and learn from. Right. So there was there was actually a lot of guys who had been through the Battle of Britain and oh, that's right, Johnny stuff Johnny like Gibson that. and people like that. Yeah, Michael Herrick was another that's one. That's right. Quite um, a swag of them. Uh, yeah, Bob Spurdle. Yep. And also, they weren't all New Zealanders coming back either, because uh, most most uh, they, most were, but there were, there were a few British chaps like Ari. Yeah. Uh, what was the one from? But a boy. Um, well, name escapes me at the moment, but he, he was a was he a squadron leader, I think. He he came out of uh, yeah, some of them came out of straight out of um, Java and Singapore, right, and right. they sort of got washed up here on these these shores. From the debacle in Singapore. Okay, and I know one of them that came out here uh, then in, in early '42 uh, was Roy McGowan, who was a, a British uh, Battle of Britain veteran, and he'd actually been shot down during the Battle of Britain, and he'd been burnt, and he'd gone through the whole um, guinea pig club thing, and come come back and got to the point where it, you know he could he could work again, and so they brought him out here uh, to help set up the uh, the the squadrons from a ground role, so, um, you know, he was a pilot, he knew all about what they were doing, but he didn't actually do much flying, I don't Would think. he be in operations and fighter control and that sort of thing, do you think? I, I'm not entirely certain of the, the role he was performing here uh, in New Zealand, but he wasn't actually flying among us, among the squadrons, but he, he was in the in the structure of setting up those squadrons. Right. I, I knew there was, and of course we've got a lot of assistance in helping, because a fighter by itself is usually pretty useless. You have to have a system to for it to operate with, and otherwise it's just not going to find anything. You know, we talk, mm. we talk about interceptors here, and yep. um, home defence, and they did send out a lot of radar people. Um, uh, we even got Canadians. We even had Canadian officers came in to help set up this, our radar chain. It was basically oh, okay. based on the uh, British one of you know the Battle of Britain. Yeah, more or less that system, probably slightly more modern radar. But um, very much the you know the same uh, control system, triangulation um, rooms, operations rooms, all that sort of stuff. 
But uh, there was, you know, Britain did give his help as much as it could anyway to get this new uh, fighter defence system set up within New Zealand for our own defence when New Zealand really believed it was for the chop. And yeah. it was going to have bloody hordes of carriers off our coasts and Wellington being attacked and Auckland being attacked. And, for, and incidentally, for that reason too, they started some of the Hudsons and Kitty Hawks, which were flowing in in 1942, were actually sent, diverted to Littleton and were assembled at Harewood. Ah, from right. memory, there was about, say, 18 or 20 Kitty Hawks and, and maybe as many Hudsons were actually assembled at, at Harewood. And they sent a test pilot down there by the name of Newman, Cos Newman. He did all the test flying there. And that was specifically to split our... Um, basically not all have our eggs in the one basket because they knew that right. the Japanese well they guessed that the Japanese probably knew that there was an air base at Auckland for Nuapai because it was in the papers before the war and yep. under Harkia yep. and Woodburn but they wouldn't necessarily guess Harewood and that was the thinking I think that they should just try and split their you know uh, wiser not to have all the, all the eggs in one basket in other words well exactly and of course uh those uh, those three initial squadrons, um, uh, number sixteen squadron went to went to Woodburn, but they were actually based next door at a at a little separate station, which was Fairhall, and and that was like a that was basically they took over a farm and all the aircraft were parked under trees and the and the sh- there was sheds and and everything taken over and that that was an interesting one. Yes, there's a lovely photograph taken of of from Fairhall looking across it to the hangars on the other side of the field. Yep. And it was all, you know, it was around the edge of the airfield. I think it was looked like uh, gorse, just gorse hedges. And there was around the farm, there were uh, poplar trees and various other bushes and trees. And they set up their camp there. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't call it a station. I think it was called a, a, a more or less a, uh, a camp. Okay. The aircraft operated off the same. They may have, and in fact, the Kitty Hawks often, there's a photograph, they're actually backed up against the hedge, just sort of to be not too conspicuous. Right. So they, right. I think, whether they, I think they even had their own officers mess there, or probably a pretty rough one. <laughs> they they took over uh, the farmhouse and um, the, all the officers lived in in the big big old farm homestead as as a mess. So, yeah, you're right there. Anyway, but they did have an operations room at Woodburn uh, for that to, to control them. That was set up, and of course, the three the locations of those three squadrons are quite. Uh, telling and that the Wellington seemed to be well protected. It had Masterton sort of protecting more from the north and it could fly it to either coast. Yep. And then you've got a, on the other side, a bit further south, you've got um, Woodburn sitting there and Fairhall, Fairhall Camp. And uh, I think most of the people at Woodburn knew very well of Kitty Hawks on the other side. I mean, could you hide a Kitty Hawk taking off? Not really. If, unless you were completely deaf. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think anybody would have knew that there were kitty hawks on the other side of the field. Would feel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and of course uh, with Auckland, because um, that had the with, well, sorry, yes, but Auckland, of course, at Fenuapai you had the uh, 15 squadron. But I think the idea was that the New Zealand was sure that the Americans would provide us with extra fighters if the Japanese came close, and they figured that Wellington was. Uh, well enough looked after but Auckland was what the Americans had their eyes on even at that stage they were asking about uh, setting up a, a, a big uh, what do you call it, infrastructure for a make quite a major support base in Auckland right. and, and basing a you know, reasonable sized fleet there 
and, and flying, I think up to 72 flying boats and all this sort of thing. So they thought, oh, and then they wanted two airfields, I think, the Americans, and they were going to be Seagroves, one of them, and um, what was the other one? Ardmore. Uh, Ardmore, probably. Ardmore, yeah. It wasn't, uh, of course, Ardmore was built somewhat later, but um, certainly Seagrove, and they, they were going to be home to a fighter, fighter squadron, so that New Zealand government was pretty sure the Americans would help us defend Auckland, which is why there were two south and only one in the north. Yeah. And, but, and, the, and the whole... And as I said, these radar station chain and um, all the people that operated it, but that was all, they were trying to rush it to completion. But, you know, things were always late in coming and had to come from the other side of the world. We had to learn to use it. And a lot of RAF specialists and operating and stuff had to be sent out to help get our people up to speed. And, and it was all very exciting at the time, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And also, even at the same time, they were setting up New Zealand, the whole Air Force was being set up for home defence. And they had these Army Cooperation Squadrons popping up at... Um, Onorahi and uh, where were the other places? Nelson uh, and was one, the one at Norwood. Norwood, Norwood each of them was attached. In fact, they were by that time they were only sort of half squadrons, really. They only about nine aircraft each, but they each was to be at the disposal of the um, the army uh, division that was in charge of the, the defences in those th- the three main army areas. Right. Um, I can't remember the numbers of them, but you know, they were. Was it? There's uh, tw- 20, 21, and 22 squadrons, wasn't so they? They became that. Yeah, they originally started out as yeah. one large one, but they later split them up. Uh, yeah, yeah, they started as six squadrons. That's right. Yeah, and, which yeah. was an 18 aircraft squadron, but they split them up. <laughs> and of course, one of them was equipped with um, Vincent's number 22. That's right. Yep, yep, that's that's right. Right. That squadron was formed at the Haki, was that was only for formation and conversion, and then they all turtled them down to, to Norwood. But yeah, that was, and of course we had Hudson squadrons at um, Fenuapai and the Hakia and where was the third, well, in Fiji. Uh, Nelson, Nelson had... Oh, sorry, yes. Um, that was up there till early 43, wasn't it, Nelson? Yeah. Yeah, yep. And the OTU at uh, Levin for the Bombers. Hmm. But that was all basically defence, and of course uh, that led to New Zealand wanting to take a more active part in the war. As 1942 passed on, it looked as though, mind you, things have got pretty scary towards the end with the um, invasion of uh, well, with the uh, Japanese setting up at Guadalcanal, but in that battle to, to get rest control of that island from one of the other, um, you know, took till February 43 to sort out. So New Zealand felt quite. Um, in awe of all this violent action taking place in the Solomons, and um, we felt we were right in the path of that. It was still a few thousand miles away, but it was close enough. Yes. And it did, it did shake everybody in New Zealand to think of all this going on, reading about the, you know, the Battle of Midway and the Battle of the Coral Sea and then the campaigns in, in Papua New Guinea. It was all pretty scary. Well, that's right, and there wasn't much in between what was happening up there and New Zealand to uh, to stop them, really. So, um, and of course, they they formed Number Seventeen Squadron uh, at Seagrove, didn't they? That's right. Of course, that that followed on from the um, transfer of Fifteen Squadron up to Tonga, and yes. and they were to take over an American squadron up there, the Sixty Eighth Pursuit, and or probably called Fighter Squadron by then. Uh, and of course, they abandoned the ones that. Fanua Pai, which we used at Seagrove, because Seagrove was started off as a satellite of Fanua Pai, I think, but it later became the main station, fighter station in the Auckland area. 
and of yeah. course they just formed up a new squadron from basically pilots to hand, mostly flight ex flying instructors and things. Um, I think PGH Newton was with them. He was a he was an instructor, I think. Okay. A lot of them are Tiger Moth instructors. Funny, it was quite funny. I did think they'd be from Harvard's, but not most of them. Well, awful lot of those pilots came from um, elementary flying training schools. Oh wow! Okay. Not 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 as necessary as new, brand new pilots, but as you know, as instructors. Yeah. And they they always found instructors. But most of them made pretty good pilots. The instructing made you a good pilot, I think. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yep, definitely. So that we relied a lot on instructors to, to man the fighter squadrons. Not entirely. They often said they said one fault with instructors could be that they they were too proud of their flying. They liked to fly beautifully and um, and balanced perfectly and. Um, they said sometimes you needed a bit of a rough type of pilot who'd smash the control column and the cockpit from side to side and fly with cross controls to they said that's the sort of pilot who can get a get a jap off his tail. Right. You've got to be unpredictable. Right. Not 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 like an airline pilot at all. <laughs> In fact yeah, airline pilots sometimes didn't make very good pilot pilots, either they just were too proud of their they just got so used to flying properly that um, rough flying like that was went against the grain. Right. I mean, yeah. some no doubt learned to change. Some didn't. <laughs> I, I think most of the pre-war airline pilots went into the uh, Hudsons and and the the bombers, didn't they? Rather than the other heavy aircraft, some of them went yeah. uh, manned. In fact, to start with, they manned the DH eighty sixes of the Harky, training observers, and the right. and the repeats were there too. Some of the repeats were there, and, and, and yeah. the heavier aircraft, like as you said, that as they came along, they were ideal for that. And also, for a lot of them, be, uh, participated in the ferry flights of the uh, Venturas and uh, Catalinas and Dakotas and things, because they had long experience of nursing and watching the. Um, they, they they tended to be more careful with engine handling and tried to treat the engines by the book, <laughs> right. so they'd yep. last. Yep. The accountants insisted on it. Should we look at the P40s? going up to the Pacific uh, and talk about uh, how they prepared for combat, basically, and, and the kind of configuration they had the aircraft in, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, um, of course, that came about um, well after we had settled Hudson's into the American, embedded it with the American Air Forces at Santo and Guadalcanal. They, they were sort of keen to watch to see if these Kiwis were up to it, and... Um, would be reliable and so forth and the Americans gradually got more um, faith in them and um, asked, you know, started requesting extra aircraft and of course particularly, we haven't mentioned it yet, but the, there was a, a, a land lease agreement signed between the New Zealand and American governments in the early September 42 in Washington and they agreed to supply us with aircraft uh, on the proviso that they be pretty well entirely used on offensive operations up in the Solomons under American command. Yep. And in fact, if we couldn't agree to that, we wouldn't get any. Well, I don't think they even had to say that because New Zealand, but the government was quite keen to get more involved in the war and show it could stand alongside. It didn't want to just be a bystander. The yes, government was yeah. quite gung-ho, actually. And um, so that's what happened. They uh, they set up, uh, the Americans had already set up a special body in Washington to decide where American-produced aircraft were allocated. And it wasn't only American ones either, I think the British had to sort of fit in a system of their own, and they compared notes on their planned production, 
uh, for the coming year, and um, and they could make bids for its other, other aircraft. Uh, and of course, Britain took a lot. Although they were supplied under this land lease agreement, the allocation was quite a separate process. And you know, Russia, Soviet Russia was in there, Brazil, China, Mexico, a lot of countries signed uh, land lease agreements. Brazil, I mentioned Brazil. Yeah, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, a few others. Um, did I mention Mexico? It was in there. They had a land lease agreement. Right. Um, and basically, it was decided by this supposedly impartial committee in Washington. I don't know whether it had British people on it or not. Probably mostly American. And they just considered the, on a pretty regular basis, would review the uh, situation on operational fronts and decide if things were going well or not so well and if new types of aircraft would be suitable here, there or wherever and um, what air, well if, 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 of course if the, the commanders and theatres were having trouble with particular types of aircraft they complained bitterly to Washington so they'd get to hear about it and get the manufacturers on the job of trying to you know, build the defect, defects out of new aircraft in production so they wouldn't Forth these complaints, and if they thought they were a lost cause, they'd, they'd um, try and order up production of another one. But, but you know, once these production lines are set in motion, you can you can modify them a bit. You can, uh, but if you want to change your, uh, to a totally new aircraft, it's quite a while before they can get a one phased out and another one phased in. It took right. a lot of disruption. They they desperately tried to keep. Uh, they'd rather keep a, a reasonable type in production. Uh, they might have some new ones going into production, that, but not tested. And they, you know, one of those might become a fizzer. So they like to have some old reliables, and I think the P40 was one of the old reliables. You know, people said, "Well, it's not the greatest, but it's it's good enough." Right. And um, that's why they were so widely built. I think up to was it November '44, the last ones were finally delivered. Okay. By which time the yep. P51 had proven itself, and the P47 had, and they ironed the bugs out of the P38s. And most of the United States Navy fighters seem to work out reasonably well. So they had quite a quite a fistful of good designs at the end of the war. But the P-40 was kept in use and sort of often in second, what we considered secondary theatres like you know China and Burma and uh, Italy, Pacific, Italy, yeah, yep. uh, across the Mediterranean to Italy. Yeah, they 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 did quite a good job, I think. Um, most people. At least had a grudging respect for them. Some sometimes they, if they've been flying Spitfires, they usually dismiss them out of hand. But um, they were quite a tough aircraft, and there were lots of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even though that uh, you know some models might be might be considered not so good, but um, you know models of the P40. But for instance, the idea of the um, P40N model, the N for nuts, was that it would be a lightweight P40. And of course, New Zealand received quite a few of them. And one way of saving weight was well, a pretty simple. They'd leave out half the fuel tanks. They'd leave out the two outer guns. They would change the wheels to smaller type wheels. They'd change the brass radiators and oil coolers to aluminium ones. And they'd take out, took out some instruments. And uh, of course, if you if you wipe out quite large fuel tanks and guns and things, you're going to bring the weight down. Uh, as I said, it turned out a, a lightweight aircraft that, was, that didn't have much range. The firepower was down quite a bit. 
I couldn't fly it at night very well or on instruments and um, a lot of American Air Force in particular said this is no good and they just converted them back, put the extra guns back in, put in the, the fuel tanks that have been uh, removed and um, in fact we did much the same. Like when we got these P-40Ns I've, I've had some files somewhere that was saying they'd decided to settle on a all, they said all six wing guns will be installed, including the outer ones. Yeah, they, apparently they shipped them. They shipped them with the extra guns, but you had the option. And uh, I don't think there was much they could do about the instruments because they, the instrument panel had been changed and they left some out, mostly the blind flying instruments. And they thought, well, they, they thought they might be able to get them refitted, but they, I don't think they ever did. They just had to put up with it. And they, they had a a choice of drop tanks, I think there was 75 gallon ones and 150 gallon, these are US gallon tanks, and they normally used the, I don't know whether which one they used normally actually, I think this 150 one has got a big wide fat one, you know it was wider than it was um, deep, right. uh, but I think we mostly used, it. I think it was the 75 US gallons tank, which you know would probably last you, give you an extra, ooh, probably an extra hour flying or something. Okay. So they they wanted a, a longish range one. They and they knew they had to fly them often at night because often you know takeoffs on on some strikes were pre you know pre dawn takeoffs and things. But usually they they didn't normally fly them as night fighters. But I think we might have a bit more to say on that later. I think I mentioned right. night fighters, didn't I? Yep. When they were forced to use them by the Americans, <laughs> <laughs> it was not very successful, but. Uh, some people say, well, any fighter at night is better than no fighter, but they say, well, sometimes it's just so useless, it's just not really worth bothering. <laughs> they tried, they, the British tried the same with the Spitfire and the Hurricane, of course, yeah, they without did. radar. And, uh, well, they did have radar, but they didn't have proper interception radar very early in the war. And, um, they just floundered around and never found anything. But like a lot of the flying in the First World War, night flying, when they tried to get Zeppelins, a few of them found them, but they were very difficult. I think they had relied on the anti-aircraft guns to uh, shooting at them to <laughs> alert them to where they were. Right, yep. yep. That's the Zeppelins, that is. Yes, yep. So so that um, the first squadron that went to the Pacific from New Zealand was 15 Squadron, and they went up to Tonga and actually took over some existing uh, US Army Air Force uh, p 4 That's right, and, and not only the um, aircraft and... and uh, but also, they, I think those radar stations were left there too, because again, That's most right. fighters are useless without a radar set up. Well, they're far, far more effective with a proper, proper radar surveillance system that can guide them to whether, whatever it is, you know, ships, aircraft. Yep. Without them, yep. they really need them. Right. So those those aircraft that they took over, um, it's been said many times that they were pretty clapped out. Well, they were. They, were, they said that the standard of maintenance of the Americans on them wasn't up to RZF standard, which I, I think means they were a bit neglected. Right. And I don't think they, they weren't very impressed with the way they um, stored some of the stuff too. They said a lot of the guns were stored with rust in the barrels and that sort of thing. Oh, wow. I mean, you can always clean, you know, clean it off, I suppose, but um, they thought they were... But they did have a lot of spare engines. <laughs> Yeah, okay. people, people would get that in wartime. Engines are just used up like nobody's business. Um, even in the Battle of Britain earlier, you know, Merlin would ex be expected to last 80 to 100 hours or something like that. Uh, okay. So hard, treated hard. 
And so that meant, you know, that's only about a typical Spitfire flight might be three quarters of an hour. P-40 would be a bit longer. And um, there wouldn't be many flights and... Uh, of course, there's a good chance the aircraft to be lost anyway long before it used up its engine hours. But right. the uh, people are appalled these days when they look at the lives of wartime engines. They they went very long. Although um, fighter aircraft might have been the hardest because often, particularly interceptors, where they had to take off and they may not have been properly warmed up, and the oil might be might have been warmed up, and they were operating at high power power levels for um, perhaps extended periods. And uh, you know, the operating conditions, you know, it could be dusty and um, gritty, and even though they were filtered with, uh, fitted with filter systems, they could, some of it would still get through. Yep, yep. The uh, props would get uh, braided, you know, the propeller blades would get all the paint worn off it and start wearing on the leading edges. And they just lose condition. Uh, I guess the, the tropical atmosphere can't have been good on the aircraft either. Well, that was pretty tough. Uh, yeah. And people and people working on aircraft found it tough too. Yeah. People getting not red hot, but pretty damn hot. You know, they often you hear the expression that they get fry and egg on them, and some people did. Yeah. And uh, and a, 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 a lot of plastic in those aircraft, the perspex or the plexiglass, as the Americans called it. They um, they had used a lot of that during the war, and. Um, and they sat outside all the time, you know, there were no, really no hangars in Pacific airfields. Yep, they yep. Just, you just sat outside all day, every day, and it had heavy rain, probably fluctuation in temperatures. Um, another, another hazard was, um, probably not so common, was I remember Peter Gifford told this one, that he, he had a kitty hawk at Guadalcanal, and, you know, he was assigned it, and he would be on scramble alert, and um, you're familiar with the expression, are you, scramble alert? Basically, you just sit in a hut wait, waiting for the call, and it wouldn't be in the aircraft normally, but um, anyway, you know, there'd be bogeys being reported coming over, and you had to go up and intercept to see what they were, and uh, he rushed out He rushed out with, I think there might have been you know, two or three of them might be sent up together, and uh, he roared off, and he noticed his, as he climbed that his old uh, engine temperature kept going up, and uh, in fact, he was got up to a dangerous level, and he thought, God, I better get back to... Airfield, and he, in fact, he didn't quite make it. He crash landed on the beach, I think it was, at Kukum. Okay. Turns out the minor birds had been building a nest in his radiator cow, and uh, it was quite a good nest, apparently. <laughs> wow. Just blocked the airflow, and uh, so they had to keep an eye out on the old minor birds. Yeah, okay. Bit of a hazard to aerial navigation there. Now, the the maintenance crews that uh, that went up to Tonga uh, with the squadron were they part of the squadron they or did they stage squadrons the whole, whole whole unit technical staff right. all, up to right, you know, up okay. to a certain standard of servicing um, basically they did all the what we'd call maintenance um, daily servicing might very minor repairs um, and and for a fighter squadron of about 18 aircraft they needed about 150 180 that sort of number it yep, seemed yep. to increase a bit later in the war, but I think that had a lot to do with the... When they were doing a lot of bombing, they needed, needed a lot more... Because um, they were doing strafing too, they, um, they'd need uh, a lot of people to work on the bombs and setting them up and loading them aboard, which is all hard work, and bringing them from the dumps. You know, it was quite a lot of labour involved in bombs, far right. more so than with ammunition. And, and the refuelling, that they, and, and, and they'd be taking out the... You know, taking out instruments, um, 
and give them to the instrument if they get get in trouble or changing radios and things. There's lots, lots, and lots of just standard checks and um, inspections all the time. And of course, the yes. run, and uh, often the runways of the Japanese have been bombing them, like they had at Guadalcanal. Often they had uh, damage of the uh, the master mating, you know, the old um, steel uh, plate type runway covering. If they bombing got anywhere near that, it often just turned up edges and had little sharp edges on things. Minor, ah, minor, yep. minor shrapnel damage, and of course, aircraft would keep running over them, boosting their tyres until they yep. found the offending bit. Apparently, they could actually take. Uh, I always thought that if, if you had a rotten bit right in the middle, you'd have to take dismantle the whole line or something, but apparently, they, they could take them out, an individual plate out from the middle of it oh, okay. by cunning, cunning means. I think they had oh. thought of that in the first place, actually. They had special tools anyway for that, that type of runway, and it was real godsend. Um, that stuff that would have, yeah, because it was generally, I don't know how popular it was with pilots, but because it, it could be pretty noisy landing and taking off on it, but it, um, it certainly made runways usable that may have been rendered unserviceable with, without the protection of it that it gave to the you know, softer ground underneath, right. Uh, that that, mas- that matting must have got really warm in the in the heat of the day. Uh, true, true. Being being metal, so soak up the sun. Uh, mm. So that can't have been good on the tyres, I imagine. Well, I suppose they just had to put up with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> might have lasted a bit, uh, not so long, uh, with that sort of heat on it. Yeah, but, but awful lot of the strips were covered in it. Uh, and of course, you could get bare um, coral strips too, the, those gleaming white ones. But yes. they were they had their own hazards. They were they could very uh, erosive erosive properties of the coral. I think the other thing about the coral is apparently the dust would build up on the surface of the aircraft, and it was the same sort of effect as ice building up on the on the surface of the aircraft. Uh, and so they would have to continually wash the aircraft down. Uh, and uh, the only thing that would take the the, the the building up coral dust off the would would be uh, petrol, um, so they had to continually wash the aircraft down with uh, with petrol to stop the build up of that of that dust because it would it, it was kind of a, it would stick to itself. Okay, and um, uh, that's one of the reasons why you see the paintwork. Uh, on these on these aircraft, that the paintwork didn't last very long in the Pacific because they're being blasted by this dust that's been pushed by the prop, uh, uh, but also it was continually also being washed down with petrol, so that you know the, the, your paint didn't last long. I know another thing was that, um, that, that that coral dust was very notorious for was well apart from eroding propellers and supercharger impellers, was that it. Um, and, and probably grates uh, scraping the plexiglass parts of the oh, uh, yeah. thing. They, you know, because they're quite delicate surfaces on. I mean, they're moderately tough things, but that sort of grit, but being blasted across them by the slipstream on takeoffs, particularly, wouldn't do them any good. And another another thing that was very susceptible to damage was the um, seals on hydraulics. Um, you know, they have delicate edges. A lot of those the seals. Yep, yep. And they can get easily damaged. And often they had to fit um, leather boots, I think, just sort of leather bagging around them to protect some of the more important ones. Right, because that dust must have got into every single little gap, every little cranny that w- was on the, particularly on the underside of the aircraft. Apparently, yes, I think it did. 
would get everywhere. Yeah. Oh gosh. Terrible stuff. <clears throat> so the the poor old ground crew guys, they they had a heck of a time really up there, and uh, and of course the Japanese were trying to bomb them too in uh, Guadalcanal and That's right. other places. So, um, I think the last bombing time the RZF got bombed at their own bases would have been at uh, Guadalcanal and and, and somewhat at Piva, t- uh, not Piva, um, Turkey, Wanda, and although the cities weren't Wanda much, I don't think. Barrett, uh, what was the one they used? On Donga, I don't think that was ever bombed very much, but Monda was bombed quite a bit. And uh, Torakina, of course, was came under um, shell fire too, Japanese shell fire in uh, March 44 when the Japanese were trying to push them off. Right. So at least one P-40 just ripped off with um, shrapnel damage from Japanese artillery fire. Yes, I think the airman yes. was blown off the wing and was knocked about a bit too. Yeah. He also had some Venturas damaged by uh, bomb, actually Japanese era bombs at Monda too. But that's, okay. that's another story. Yep. But, but generally after that they didn't have to worry about the Japanese too much because the Japanese just ran out of aircraft and except on Bougainville they never really represented much of a threat uh, to the airfield as such. The aircraft always, always in harm's way of course if they're flying lower around the coastlines trying to pick off trucks and um, vegetable gardens and so forth and huts <laughs> and especially right. finding barges but um, they knew that uh, the Japanese were running out of uh, artillery shells and particularly fuses for them as the war went on yep. so they be, it was a gradually diminishing hazard the Japanese in the but they still you know, had to always bear them in mind. So um, with the with 15 squadron they, they went to Tonga they they got these aircraft from the Americans. Uh, they got them up to their standards, and they then flew them down to Fiji, where they were uh, doing sort of final operational training. And they lost their CO there, didn't they? That's right. Yeah, that was Alan uh, um, Crichton. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, he was an ex-airline pilot too, with Crichton anyways. But um, yeah, it seemed, seemed odd, but they uh, they were working up with one of the carrier air groups, I think. They were, they were learning U.S. Navy tactics. Right. That's what they were there for uh, before they committed them to the front line. Because, of course, up to the time, this time, the New Zealanders had been using more or less standard RF tactics. And from what I can make out, there was almost obsolete tactics. They were still flying in a VIX of three, okay. uh, which was... Uh, perfectly okay for formation flying and so forth, but uh, as far as fighter tactics went, it was considered a bit obsolete by then. But certainly by the time they got up to Guadalcanal, I think they were flying in fours by then, right. you know, sections sections of four, and that was the minimum combat formation was the, the section. In other words, you know, your, your number one and his number two, and and then the number two and his number two. Right. That, that sounds confusing, but um, you could, <laughs> yeah. you could, in fact, the the words you could break down into pairs. Yes, yeah, and that became the standard through taught at the OTUs from a certain point. Even yeah, the area seemed to be quite slow in changing over to that. Uh, although it seemed to be more on who who was the CO or who was the wing, you know, the wing commander flying that, that change over. It's never been satisfactorily explained exactly how the area. But but a lot of the, but a lot of the people we got out from um, Britain taught the old VIX of three still, and that was an early 42. Well, that's actually interesting, because I thought that they'd brought in the 
the Finger Four uh, thing in the Battle of Britain. Oh, the Germans did. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I think that's probably the okay. first ERE became fully aware of it. I really, uh, no doubt people probably know about where it, where it actually and how it started by now, but it's, they said it was surprisingly difficult to find out because it seemed to be by osmosis as much as anything, right. rather than being from the top. There seemed to be certain enthusiasts for it. But anyway, we'd, we, we had finally cottoned on to it, but the Japanese were still flying in, 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 in uh, Vicks of 3 too. Okay. At the time we were up there. And of course, our, our P-40s we had were only in combat for, um, well, only on operations, proper operations in the Ford area from April 43 to beginning of June 44, and that's only a period of, well, about 15 months, I suppose. Yep. And, and about half of that was in where the Japanese had an air force. Well, April 43 to February 44, that's late April to late February, what's that? About nine months, is it? Yeah. Nine, nine, ten, maybe ten months. Ten months was with the Japanese aircraft, and after that there were basically none. You know, there'd be an odd one hiding in the bushes, but... Um, <laughs> and, and it was pretty well, well fighter bombing from there on. So they're only in that combat, and of course the maximum strength we would have up in the Ford area at any one time would be two squadrons, which would be, uh, you know, initially that would be 21 pilots each, and, and early 44 they increased it to about 27 pilots per squadron. Okay. Uh, and that would be divided up into, you know, your two flights, A and B flights, and under each, under one, each flight under its own flight commander. And sometimes the CO would fly and sometimes he wouldn't. In fact, they are mostly in fighter squadrons. The CO commanding officers flew quite a bit, probably as much as anybody else. And the rest of them would be divided... Well, all, all of those pilots were divided up into sections. This is before they went into... In fact, often they only finalised their sections when they got up to the Ford area or the rear part of the Ford area, settled down into combat formations, and they were the whole, whole squadron would be divided up into five initially and later six six sections of four men each yep. so five sections is 20 and six sections is 24 and the other three pilots were listed as spares or reserve right. pilots and they could be popped in to place anybody that felt a bit seedy or had been slightly hurt or, or went missing yeah, of course, in the Pacific there was a lot of um, disease as well. A lot of people picked up tropical disease, so they didn't complete a full tour, even if even if they weren't wounded or, or anything. That's right. It was quite quite harsh conditions. Um, like they used to lose a lot of weight, and particularly those early squadrons, they would, they would lose up to two stone or three stone. Yep. Just on a six-week tour. And that also, most of them apparently became yellow because they were oh, the uh, take, take, taking the Atabrin uh, tablets. For, Anti-malarial. Anti I think everybody that went up there had went through that. Yeah. The air crew often suffered more nervous tension than ground crew generally. Yeah. And um, some of the squadrons got quite ragged by the end. I think one of the unlucky ones was 17, which lost about six pilots in a matter of a few, matter of weeks, which was quite heap of severe losses for our squadrons. Yes, they did. They did long hours too. They, of course, the P40s internal tankages and with a drop tank is a lot more, have a lot more than a Spitfire. So they could. I think there's some pilots flying up to six or seven hours a day and that sort of thing. Some of the very intensive operations, like the um, when they were occupying the uh, Central Solomons, um, 
was it over Rendover and Mondoran around there? The Central yep. Solomon campaign was very, very intensive flying there and uh, very hard. And the losses of aircraft were quite steady, I think. You know, they, um, if, if it was badly damaged, most of them would just be, there wasn't a great deal of rebuilding up in those very 40 areas, it was, it was just pushed to the side. Yep. New Zealand Air Force always seemed to have a want to rebuild them and this sort of thing, but often it was quicker just to get another one. <laughs> right. But the trouble was, because uh, Americans had a very casual, like if it was, an aircraft was damaged, it collapsed its undercarriage often, that was enough to uh, just push it off to the dump and it became a Christmas tree for the spare parts. Right. And uh, Americans got quite brushed off, and New Zealanders would be trying to carefully check up aircraft, and they said, look, let's get the bloody thing off, we've got, aircraft, you know, we've got a damaged aircraft coming back, and we had to often fit in with them and... Um, you know, if an aircraft was was not paying its way, it would be or was holding up others. It was just bulldozed aside. Yeah, that that must have been heartbreaking for the Kiwis because they had such a, a different philosophy, didn't they? Of course, when they when they formed these draw up these allocations for the um, uh, allocation of all these aircraft that have been reduced in America, as I said, the American British reduction. Figured in it too, but um, you know, Americans had a rough idea of how many British bombers the British were building. Yeah. Not they were intensely interested, but they did like to know how big the um, the ally was for these bombing these big bombing campaigns. They, they just took a lot mild interest. But um, now, what was the point I was trying to make here? Uh, absolutely no idea. <laughs> um, we, we were talking about the different philosophies between the, the New Zealand. Oh yes, and yes, the... yes. Al um, wastage rates. Now that was yes. the Americans yeah. had wastage rates based on their own experiences. Some of the early ones of which in the war were quite quite serious, yeah. and uh, and, the, and I think they gradually modified them. But they they actually had when they allocated us, they said right, we're going to equip you you guys. We're going to equip four or five squadrons, and it'll be so many per squadron. And we reckon on the sort of operations I'll be flying in the Ford area that we're basing it on our losses over the last 12 months or six months. We say a fighter squadron will use um, an attrition rate of 20% per month or 10% per month or something and uh, just work it out from there. So in actual fact, the, the number of aircraft delivered over a period uh, intended to you know, maintain a certain number of squadrons were quite generous. Right. I could afford right. to wipe them off, but it was still easier to, if you could repair, if it wasn't too badly damaged, it was still probably worth fixing it if you had spares available. Right. And New Zealand tried to try to do this. And of course, the Treasury in New Zealand was always jittery about American prices and things, and was trying to see that the best use was got out of things. Yeah, I think another factor too is that the. The the ground staff, the, all the different mechanics, uh, fitters, all that, they'd actually been much more um, intensely trained in New Zealand than the guys who were entering the services in uh, in the USA. So they they had much more depth of how to repair stuff rather than rather than just you know. Well, we did try to, to when we sent people up the Pacific, we tried not to send up too many beginners. Most of them were had quite a bit of experience in New Zealand, yeah. even if it hadn't been on that aircraft type. Yeah, um, but the Americans were always trying to play catch up with their. They had huge programs to train mechanics. You know, they trained um, trained them by the hundreds of thousands. You know, we trained our courses. They might have been fifty or sixty, 
and uh, and of course our ones also we didn't have that many trades. Like the actual people that worked on aircraft could probably be numbered on you know on on a one and a half hands. Yeah. You know you've got your airframe, your engine, instruments, uh, electrics. Yeah. Armor. Um, uh, the armor and there might be a uh, oh a um, what the hell do they call them fabric worker. Oh yeah. And that was about it. Because our, our engine people, I think, I think they did propellers too, but I could be wrong on that. The airframe people had to do everything else, except the specialist things of electrics, radios, and and of course later on they had sa uh, safety equipment um, workers too, right. which took up right. some of the jobs. Because I think the old, probably the old uh, fabric worker might have had to do, if anybody. I don't know whether anybody did the, you know, they, they did have May Wests and things then, and parachutes and things like that. Oh, a parachute packer was another one, of course. Well, that's yes. not the airframe, yeah. of course, but it's part of the equipment, yep. necessary equipment for the aircraft. Whereas Americans t t sort of broke them up more and more into specialised trades. You know, they had experts on hydraulics and experts on uh, just about everything. Propellers, they had yeah. propeller experts. You know, we, we never had propeller experts. Right. And they had a whole lot of other ones too. But they, but as Ameri even New Zealanders admit, they said, well, the American specialists, you know, they were good. <laughs> but yep. the average American mechanic was trained quite simply because he didn't have to do any of the complicated stuff, whereas New Zealanders expect to do some of the, have a bit of, they might have had a bit more depth of the theory of it, for instance. Yep. I couldn't really yep. compare myself, but you do hear these t differences being talked about. And, and as I said, generally they didn't send beginners overseas, but often the Americans that were sent overseas were complete beginners. Right, and they're the people that were—they basically were trained on the job. I think a lot of them, especially in the very right. early days of the war, when it was all—they were trying to get squadrons up and running and send them off to the far side of the world. You know, there's the stories of the um, ones in Australia where they—the mechanics were all car mechanics. They said, "Oh, well, we'll just try and keep an eye on them and see they don't make any blues." But they, these chaps, didn't realise they had—they said they've given us too many spark plugs. They didn't realise that aircraft engines had two spark plugs per um, cylinder and all this sort of thing. Right. And then there were the ones that filled up the uh, coolants, uh, coolant system with cooling system with uh, hydraulic fluid, and they put the you know where the hydraulic fluid ended up, where it oughtn't to be, um, in the other place. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the hydraulic hydraulic fluid in the cooling system and the cooling fluid in the ah. hydraulic system. Right. That took a bit of flushing out. <laughs> <laughs> Not being, uh, I imagine some of those wouldn't be very comp compatible with the rubber seals used in the um, hydraulic system, for instance. Those yeah. delicate yeah. things I was, we were mentioning earlier, they don't like the wrong sort of strong chemicals on them. And they they just had to learn on the job, I think, a lot of them. Whereas ours had been through, they'd started off in Tiger Moths and Simple Aircraft, and um, they did, you know, I've, you know, you've probably seen the, um, the uh, text, they wrote their own textbooks, basically. Yes, and all nice drawings of you know hydraulic pumps and inside the engines and propellers and all this good stuff. Or if it's a fabric worker, he'll have all these uh, stitching, different uh, spacing and techniques. And but yeah, ours was the British system basically. It was a bit simpler than the American one. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, the Americans had to live with theirs, and we lived with ours. Yeah, exactly. Um, so just going back now to um, I was mentioned about. Uh, 15 squadron 
went across to Fiji. They lost uh, Alan Crichton. He he collided with a, a an SBD Dauntless, and um, they then carried on to uh, Espirito Santo. Yes. And um, basically, that's really getting into the war zone there. And just about. Yep, they were right. Just, just about behind the yeah. front line there. Yeah. The uh, Guadalcanal was all was was where it was all happening then. Yeah, yeah, the yeah exactly. And of course, Japanese aircraft could reach down to the Espirito Santo at that time. In fact, they did. Yeah. yeah. Mostly um, reconnaissance aircraft and sometimes flying boats, I think. And um, I don't know whether there were any, actually, any actual heavy raids on. I don't even know if they. I, th- I think bombs were dropped, but probably only very few. They, they also had uh, submarines shelling uh, Santo as well. So. Um, that stage. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's exactly that stage. It may have been a little bit earlier, but they they definitely. I mean, it definitely was. It was immediately behind the, the the war front, if you can yeah. call it a front. Yeah, exactly. It was a dangerous place. <laughs> yeah, they were they, they were the next one on the list. Yeah, and, and so they arrived there, and they were obviously preparing to go up to Guadalcanal. They were. Yep, they were. In fact, they, uh, that was still uh, 15 Squadron. That was of course that was the first one to arrive at Guadalcanal, but. They were actually were exercising with one of the carrier air groups based on which carrier, I'm not sure, but it was a... In fact, they, they, the Dauntless that was lost, that was the carrier air group they were um, exercising with. Right. And they were learning, right. you know, American... Te- they, they said, look, if you're going to fight with us, you've got to fight like we fight, you know, and they had to fit in with that. So any, anything peculiarly British, they just drop. And, and it didn't take long, but they were starting to use American terminology... Uh, and you might notice they all the um, the sections got na- uh, named. You know the fighters, the, the arrangement of the pilots in each squadron. You'd, often it was just simple stuff like colours, like you'd have red, blue, black, white, blue, green, yep. yellow, and purple or something. Yep. For yep. the sections, but uh, you also see um, alcoholic drinks being used. I've seen gin, whiskey, rum, you know this sort of thing. Oh, right, and sometimes okay. they even use the ter- American term divisions for uh, the the sections too. In fact, I'm not quite sure the because in the British system you had pairs, sections, flights, and the squadron. Yeah, that's how it was divided up. And, and some days the CO would lead the squadron, other days it would be the flight commander, and they often yep. swapped flights about so that they tried to keep the flying airs of the pilots all roughly equal through a tour. Yep. They had to think of those things or not get too tired. Some of the, some days it was pretty tiring, particularly if there was big battles and things. They might be stood down for a couple of days. But uh, you know the fatigue among fighter pilots or air crew generally, but fighter pilots particularly on occasions, they always worried about their their health and um, how long they could last, and whether they start getting jumpy and that sort of thing. Yep. And they always, that's why they always had medical officers watching them closely. You know, most of them stood up, but I remember there was one, I think it was 15 Squadron, they, they said there were three pilots withdrawn from um, the squadron just before they went on operations, they said with various problems. Or, um, I think one one of them, they said his eyes had gone. <laughs> oh, wow. They hadn't fallen out, but they were, you know, they, they <laughs> just, he, his eyes had deteriorated quite markedly, and he, he just... I mean, he could have got away with it probably, but he was probably honest. And um, and I forget what yeah. the other ones. The other ones had got nerves, and, um, and some would suffer from the tropical conditions. They get all sorts of rashes and things. Yep. And they find yep. it extremely uncomfortable. 
and sometimes they'd keep them on for a while to see if they came right. But sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. You know, and a lot of them get skin problems and big ulcers coming out in unexpected places, and it was pretty hard. So, so 15 Squadron was the first yep. into uh, Guadalcanal? Well, after year 14's claim they were the first, but no, it was definitely 15 that got there yep. first. Because yep. they, uh, well, it just, it just happened to be that they um, were sort of tropicalised in, in this, with their stay in Tonga. That was quite a yes. tough tour too, actually, because they lost a few pilots on training there, and um, not well, one or two, few aircraft. But they sort of toughened up and, and got used to the tropics. And of course, they also had to um, work out what they were going to wear because they were, New Zealand was pretty terrible at equipping them to start with. When they sent these 15 squadrons up to Tonga, for instance, they sent them up with their standard temperate flying boots. Okay. That's the uh, the black shiny ones with the wool, uh, sheepskin linings. Yep. Not really quite in the tropics. In fact, they'd be damned insufferable. Yeah, uh, and uh, and as for flying suits, they didn't really couldn't really offer them anything, and they suggested they go and outfit themselves with some overalls from the local hardware store. This is New Zealand. Wow. And uh, they, someone told me that they one said always oh, they were plasterers overalls, and I thought, well, I don't think they actually make specific plasterers overalls. They probably I think they just make overalls, and you just choose your colour. Yeah. And another one, who was it? Uh, Keith Mulligan, I think, told me about his, and I think uh, who was it? Somebody else told me about theirs. They were both 15 squadron. Uh, uh, Ian McKenzie, probably. I think he told me about what he, he had to buy a pair of overalls. And what did they have? They had their leather helmets, of course. In fact, you see them on all the that 14 squadron. In fact, a 14 squadron, when they were on their tour, there's good pictures of them, and they're, they're still wearing leather helmets. Right. You know, just like they used to wear in New Zealand. Yep, yep. Have you seen pictures of Japanese pilots in the Pacific? They had these leather helmets, and they used to just pull the side flaps from it over the ear, they stick them straight up in the air. Right, yeah, oh, yeah, had yeah. woolly lining or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. And they, well, the underclothing was the worst thing. They were issued with um, whatever the type of New Zealand underpants and singlets were, they were no bloody good. They were probably woolen. And they said if uh, the Americans issued them with nice lightweight cotton stuff, and they said, oh, that was a, that was a lifesaver. That was getting decent underclothing for the tropics. And in fact, often they just wore underclothing in a, in a lightweight um, flying suit. Uh, I think socks and lightweight American boots once they managed to get hold of them yep. and they wore of course they soon started getting those New Zealand helmets too with the cutouts on them Oh yep, yep. and they seemed to come out in late 42 but um, they didn't the fighter pilots, I think the Hudson pilots got them first and they wore British, generally wore British goggles but later on you can see American goggles starting to appear and later in the war but then they went back to British goggles there's okay. quite an interesting turnover of the sort of equipment they had. And for instance, fighter pilots always wore British May Wests. But the bomber bomber pilots normally wore, and, and the Avengers, I think, I'm not sure, normally wore um, American May West, which are quite different. Okay. Somewhat heavier. The, the American ones were uh, inflatable, weren't they? Oh, so, so were the British. Oh, okay. They, in fact, you could. Uh, they also had floats, flotation sort of stuff, but you could blow them up. In fact, norm, normally the the was uh, well, the American, American ones only had um, air to keep them afloat. Yep. They had a double bladder, uh, which which you you could have gas bottles for, as well as I think they also had a little um, you could a little you know mouth um, tube. You could blow them up with your, if you had any, any anything left in your lungs. Right, right. And the British ones often had um, 
They had blow-up letters. Uh, did they just have one blow-up letter on them, didn't they, I think? The British May West. You know, the, what they call the Mark One Life Preserver, or whatever it was called. Yep. It came out in oh, 1941, I think, was it? It later became known as the Life, was it the Waistcoat Life Preserving Mark One or something? Okay. Because they gradually added bits and pieces to it, and you know, shark repellents and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, they're quite different. The and um, ox, ox, oxygen masks are interesting too. Originally, they seemed to have these terrible early British ones called the well, I can't think what it was called now. Type Type B C. It might have been a Type G mask, I think. And then they then they adopted a Canadian mask, and you see that occasionally in photographs. I don't know how the hell they got those. And then they later in the war they went to a what the hell did they go to after that? Anyway, later in the war, of course, particularly on Corsairs, when they went flying high, when after the Japanese Air Force had disappeared, they often, for dive bombers and things, they often just used to wear, well, especially just strafing in the jungle, they didn't use oxygen at all. Oh, yeah. And, and so they had to have throat mic and, uh, yeah, throat mic and earphones, just those big headsets they used to put over the top with, you know, big spring things over the top. Right, gotcha. I've seen pictures of Corsair pilots, particularly late in the war. They just have those little cloth cap with a peak on it, sort of American fatigue cap of some sort. Put these yep. big ear, ear pieces over and then have these wee throat mic, and that was all their flying gear. Well, yeah, they had parachute right. and things and a bit of survival yeah, yeah. gear, but uh, much more. And, of course, they used to fly along most of the time with the canopy open if it was a nice day. And, of course, that was at yep. quite low altitudes. That, you know, with the dive bombers, they didn't have to fly particularly, particularly if it was around Bougainville. Hmm. Right. But but there was quite a quite a cavalcade of sort of gear. As I said, there was a bit of New Zealand-made stuff, particularly those helmets with the cutouts, and then the later ones, which were made out of a, a, a open sort of weave material. It was they were all made in New Zealand, but they used a lot of American helmets later on. Right. And um, your parachutes are mostly American ones. I think they had, you know, early in the war we relied on British-made ones, but later on they had American ones, and they from about middle of 44 they were changing over to um, this is up in the Pacific I think but they I think they shipped some to New Zealand they had um, nylon parachutes you know prior to that okay. silk I mean I'm sure they had silk ones right at the end of the war but the nylon was making big inroads by the middle right. of the war for parachutes yeah so there's always a changing equipment okay. and they were you know they'd equip them sometimes with these ferocious looking knives what the hell do they call yep. them yep. a, they were sort of a bait well they went to bane it but they were a uh, I can't remember the name for them now. They, had, they were sort of knuckle duster type knife. Yep, yep. Aluminium yep, handle. Know Pretty yep. crudely made, but they, they look tough. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they would have come in handy if you come down in the jungle, I guess. Well, so. maybe. They'd be good for something. Probably getting coconuts yeah. or something, but not many people yeah. would fancy fighting with them against somebody with a rifle. <laughs> of course, yeah, of course air, all air crew were equipped with, with handguns. But they all reckon it was pretty bloody useless. And um, there was a lot of talk, even in all the Air Forces, about what they should really have. And they, they all agreed it should be some sort of carbine, but a few of them tried it. But um, it was a bit clumsy if you're parachuting, I think. And they were never really satisfied with the sort of gear they got. But yeah, New Zealand also invented its own. Um, uh, of course, the Americans supplied them with that fluorescein dye that you threw out in the water and it's supposed to spread out all around you. And I think it was yellow and it was supposed to. It sort of looked light green in the sea. Yeah, it is, yeah. Did they still use that, or? Yep, uh, well, they did when I was uh, a safety equipment worker, so I assume they still do. I think the Americans had a 
so-called shark repellent, but New Zealand thought it could invent one, and it did have one, but I don't think it was ever really tested. <laughs> okay. I, I think all the air crew were highly dubious about this. And most, unfortunately, <laughs> most of them didn't have to rely on it, although quite a few Corsair pilots went down, P-40 pilots went down the drink, but um, they were the worst ones. But I don't know whether many of them, so few of them might have seen sharks. I don't know. You don't really hear much about that. But. No, but that's all these things, when people suddenly get dunked in the water or far from their own bases, they get very interested in that sort of thing. I, I guess the ones that uh, did see the sharks are probably the ones that we just have missing in action. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Last year, in fact, there were, there, were quite, there were a number of pilots that were seen to get into the sea all right and wave, and, um, you know, often on deteriorating weather, and quite often those were never seen again. Probably just the yeah. sea overcame, even though the seawater's not that cold there, but it's, you know, the, the sea's a big place and, and, a, and a little head sticking out is not very big at all. Yeah. And, and they had, yeah. and in fact, the New Zealand Air Force had the, um, I don't know whether they had them in the islands, but I've seen them in, uh, in the museum, they've got examples of them, and they are these special little yellow cap you could wear on your head, just oh, yeah, like that yeah. cotton thing, just brightish yellow and often they had a little lamp sticking out, little light sticking out the top and you had a wee torch battery. Right. Have seen that one? Yeah, I've, I've seen the yellow caps but not the one with the Yeah, I think the so. yellow cap was had quite a long history. I think they might, might still exist, all I know. But they were certainly around in the 60s, I think. And, they, okay. and the, the later ones were far better. You know, the early ones were extremely crude. You know, it looked like they were toys, some of them. They were just made out of tin. Right. Probably from a very, very uh, low tender, you know, low tendering sort of contractor. He'd make them cheap and as nasty as he could. You know, some of them were really nasty. <laughs> and I think the, the some of them, of course, were designed when they encountered seawater. It sort of opened up the circuit or something. And um, this, well, I don't know whether it was like that or not because, of course, it was only good at any use at night. I don't think I'd like to be out in the middle of the ocean at night myself. No. No. Not very nice. Anyway, anything else to be discussed? Well, there's there's quite a few things actually. Um, we can look at some of the um, the incidents that happened with P40s over the time, and um, uh, like for example, if 15 Squadron went to Guadalcanal, but they were followed up by 14 Squadron, who were the first squadron to leave New Zealand with their aircraft. So. Uh, in fact, not uh, only that, they had to take up enough, they took up quite a large number of them, actually. They had to take up about one and a half squadrons worth to supply them with a good uh, working reserve, I think. Or not a working, but a reserve. They, they knew it was best, if you're going to organise these things, do a, take up more than you need. Yeah. Because um, if you try to see them up in little dribs and drabs, it's, um, it's, it takes a lot of organising and pissing about. And it's best if you've got the organisation to just take a good, goodly number. They, yeah, they took exactly. up 33 or something for a squadron of only 21 pilots. Okay. So you could say they were, you know, uh, fearful for the future if they thought they were going to have that sort of a loss rate. But, um, you know, most, most of the aircraft that were written off were, didn't involve fatalities. Yeah. Unless the Japanese yeah. were shooting at you, there's an increased chance of fatalities then. Yes. A few of them got away with, you know, the P-40 was quite a, probably a good aircraft to crash in as any, I suppose. It was quite, quite tough. Right. And of course, um, uh, those first ones that they took up, the, the very first flight of aircraft to leave New Zealand, um, it turned into a complete disaster. 
Uh, they were heading from. They went up to Norfolk Island. I'm not actually. Excuse me, just button. I, I have no idea that was. I don't know whether it was the first flight or was it the second. No, it was the. First. It was an early one anyway. Yeah, it was the very first flight. And they they went to Norfolk Island. Uh, arrived uh, during the day and um, had a bit of a rest while they uh, refueled and then pushed on. Same day. And. The same day, and uh, and we're heading for New Caledonia, and a whole series of things that should have been done weren't, like giving them accurate maps with uh, all the airfields on and various things like that. But uh, in the past, I've talked with uh, a few of the guys who were involved in that, and uh, I'll, I'll slot in here a piece that I put together uh from interviews that I that I've got over the over the years with these guys, uh, this has previously been in one of the Wings of New Zealand live shows. It's just a little segment. I'll, I'll slot that in here so you can hear first-hand accounts. But basically, five aircraft ended up either on a beach or in the sea next to the beach, and it was quite a disaster, really. So here's the here's the segment, and um, we'll come back to David afterwards. Okay. Number 14 Squadron would become the first unit to take new P-40 Kitty Hawks up from New Zealand and ferry them all the way up to the Pacific War Zone, where they would join in the air battle. The planned route was for the squadron, now based at Whanuapai, to move up to RNZAF Station Waipapakauri in the north of New Zealand, then to stage through Norfolk Island, then New Caledonia, and on to Espirito Santo where they'd train for a short time before heading to Guadalcanal. This was to be the first long-range overwater ferry operation of the RNZAF fighters. Our Hudson bombers had been successfully moving around the Pacific since the 9th of December 1941 and had been at Guadalcanal since October 1942, but the fighter ferry operation was to prove to be something quite different on this occasion. The squadron was going to move up in sections. The first section with seven Kitty Hawks, set out from Waipapakauri on the 30th of March 1943. They were escorted by two Hudsons from Number 1 Squadron who would provide navigation and radio support. Also heading up on the same day were two US Army Air Force C-47 transports with the first batch of the squadron ground crew who would support the fighters when they got there. As we'll hear from the following veterans who were involved on this fateful day, the supposedly simple operation of reaching New Caledonia did not go at all as planned. One of the pilots in those seven aircraft was Noel Hanna, who takes up the story. I was picked, for some reason or other, to fly in the first batch of new planes to be ferried up to the islands. We were to take them up, up to Esperanza Santo. But... Uh, uh, you've probably heard of the episode. It's, it's, uh, uh, somebody wrote an article about it, called it The Balls Up. And, uh, so we got, to, we got to Norfolk. Well, we actually, Jeff Fiskin was one of them. And he, when we got past Three, three Kings Islands, he, he found some fault in his plane, so he, he went back to Waipapakauri. That's where we'd take it. It stayed overnight and taken off from see it was the closest airport, airfield. First flight over uh, there, I pulled out because I was dropping out of the sky and 
and then you'd have to put your booster button on and pick up again and go on. Number 14 Squadron Fighter Ace, Jeff Fiskin. Um, then I said I was going to turn um, go back to Waipapa Carey. And um, they can, uh, committed an unforgivable sin of letting me go on my own. They were supposed to send somebody with you. you know, they, and anyway, I got, I went back to Waipapakari and I flew, we were on the way over to Norfolk Island. Um, and uh, anyway, they, um, I got back to Waipapakari and got halfway run along the runway and she cut out. <laughs> so, uh, uh, they towed her in and we looked at her and got her working again and the next day I flew down to Whanuapai to have, get her to have a look at him, you see. Owen Hicks was one of the members of the number 14 squadron ground crew as an air electrician. He remembers this event. As you probably know they started to ferry the kitty hawks up then from there. Uh, I was on the, um, I was with the second uh, uh, flight service party and uh, we went up and uh, like there were six planes, Hudson as lead and uh, a American uh, DC-3 with a service party. We didn't have any, so we didn't have any transport. Um, you probably have read the first flight actually um, got up to Norfolk Island in quicker time than what they estimated and they were going on the layover at Norfolk Island over and go on to New Mia, Tontula on the actual um, next day but because they got up there uh, quicker than what they anticipated. A while back to um, headquarters to get permission to go ahead, which they did give them, which was fatal. Then we, we got to Norfolk Island and uh, the governor invited us down for drinks. It didn't matter to me, I didn't drink anyway. And uh, uh, then we had lunch there and we did. This is carried on to to uh, New Caledonia, but you know, we had Hudson guarding us and leading us. And Number one squadron wireless operator air gunner Joe McVicker. We had an interesting time in one squadron. Uh, we were escorting the first Kitty Hawk squadron out of out of New Zealand, and in stages um, to Norfolk, to New Caledonia, and then on up you know, to the Solomon. So um, we had five, five of these aeroplanes, Kitty Hawks, and we were two, a lead Hudson and a tail Hudson. We went to Norfolk, and um, for some reason or the CO kept us, and it was right in the rainy season up there, 
and he kept us until about half past two or three o'clock before we left Norfolk. But uh, when we got him got far out of Norfolk Island, uh, Frank Ferrier's Getty Hawk played up, and he he went back, went back to Norfolk Island, and one of because we went out of, out of sight of Norfolk Island by then, and one of the, the Hudsons went back with him to give him. Uh, uh, show him where to go and to make sure he got there. And uh, then they had to turn around and catch up to us, which nearly ran them out of gas eventually. And when we uh, got to New Caledonia, that's when the problem started. There was two things wrong. One was that nobody told, told the people, where the people at um, uh, Tom Tudor around Tom Tudor and uh, New Caledonia closes in in the afternoon, the weather. And, and the other thing was that they weren't tuned to, uh, uh, their radios weren't tuned to Tom Tudor's frequency. We ran into a, 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 rain, a rainstorm right along the coast and we couldn't penetrate it to get to the to the, to the airport that we're supposed, you know, we're supposed to go to, to, to Tom Tudor. And when we got over to New Caledonia, the bloody place was blanked out. We had no communications. The army were controlling most of the communications from right in Namia, and we had no direct con control with the contact with the, anyone on the ground at, at Tom Tudor. Well, what a shambles. We, up and down the coast, up and down the coast, hoping it'd clear, and it didn't. I, we felt so bloody frustrated through lack of communication when we got there because, in fact, an aeroplane did come out from New Caledonia, from uh, Tontita, and I'm sure what he was trying to do was lead us round and lead us in, but with no words and no... We, uh, yeah, we had very antiquated... Um, uh, local communication equipment called a TR9 it was called and they were very very Mickey Mouse bloody operations the whole thing. Radio let us down there. Whether they could have got us in or not I don't know. In the finish four of them picked a little strip on the coral and, and ditched on or bailed out onto it. They landed actually. And they landed on Ansevada Beach and swung the carriage up uh, and several, the others, a couple of the others did too, but Keith MacDonald, he thought he would land in the water just off the beach, but he didn't realise how deep the water got. <laughs> it was so steep that the, 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 off the beach. And he landed in about, just a little bit offshore, but he was in 16 feet of water in, in the and didn't, and his canopy closed on him. And by the time he got that close, <laughs> got himself unharnessed, and he was standing to, to, to gurgle a bit. <laughs> and, uh, but he, got, he came ashore okay, but his plane was wrecked, it was full of salt water. And the, the CEO, uh, he, he decided to bail out for some stupid reason. But, you reckon there was no real on the beach, I think. The bloke in charge of a fellow called Stan Quill, and Stan jumped out over the over the harbour and bailed out and let 
he got out of it that way. And so when you watched him bail out, what were you thinking? No, no, I didn't see him. He was way offshore. There's a, the reef's a long way out from New, New Caledonia, from New Caledonia. And there's heaps of sea between here, there and the reef. And he bailed out there somewhere. We didn't know where. We, we were fair amazed when we heard they all made it, you know. Like, yeah. Did you actually watch them later? Did you watch no. them going? We, yes, we watched them. We couldn't see the full, couldn't see the, the strip, or we might have had a go at it ourselves. We could, we never saw that. We were just off the, the coral, off the shore a bit, and, and patrolling up and down and talking with them at that stage still. But as it turned out, uh, we, 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 we were badly given advice on, on, on uh, what we were expecting. And when we got to New Caledonia, it was completely just foreign. We didn't, uh, after we landed on this, the beach, just a couple of miles along was another airfield, a little airfield. We didn't know it was there, and we never briefed on it. And uh, the Hudson's got to go on there too. In fact, I, I saw uh, New Zealand Hudson go in there with Walter Nash. <laughs> uh, we, we got to know the, the chaps out at it, uh, uh, this little airport quite well, the Americans, and uh, we went out, used to go out there, we had 10 days there, they kept us there to quizzes about what was what went on, <laughs> and uh, uh, while we were there we, we used to go out and play cards and things with the, the chaps and the, and the, and the Americans and the, and the, out there, and uh, but, but that immediate period when you first landed on the beach, what what happened then? Because it stands out in the water, and you guys are stuck on the beach, not knowing that there's no, anything around. What happened? Well, well, we were we were, I, I, we were right across the road from an American military hospital. Then my plane hardly landed, and somebody was trying to yank me out. <laughs> I had to get the, the seatbelt undone. <laughs> So that all seen you coming down, I suppose. Oh yes, yes, I couldn't help it. It was unusual. <laughs> it was only right across the across the road from the beach. I've got a photograph. There's a photograph there taken of uh, of the back door of the hospital with the uh, four of us in it. That were the Americans were very good. They gave us because all our gear was in the in the Hudson, so it went back to. <laughs> the Americans were very good, they outfitted us with clothes and... While the P-40s had gotten down onto the beach, the crews of the two Lockheed Hudsons now had their own ordeal. They had to find their way back to tiny Norfolk Island in the dark and in the nasty weather. We went back to Norfolk Island and it was just getting dark uh, and anyhow there was concern about our fuel because we'd hung around so long and um, the bloke, we had our big, he was the squadron leader, I was with Eddie Brooke Taylor, we had our pet mechanic with us, he looked after the aeroplanes on the ground, and he was at my elbow and he was going, we haven't got enough fuel, Joe, and I said, oh, come on, yeah. no, there's not enough bloody fuel, we'll never make 
<laughs> so that was helpful. Anyhow, um, Buck Buchanan did a great job. He he did because he his astro you know, there was not too much option to do night astro, but he he put us on track, and we arrived at Norfolk. But the the only lighting they had there was some uh, motor cars because there'd been no night landing ever there before. So they'd all got down the end of the runway and flashed a light. So we uh, we were fine. Anyhow, the the guy who was the tail guy, he, he straggled in after us, and uh, I'll never forget that. Oh, they make local beer up there out of oranges, and then it was called what was it called? Some oomph or something. I remember we had a we had a very bright evening on that. <laughs> At that stage, um, the rest of the squadron was still sitting in New Zealand, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they they didn't they didn't move until we we were there for ten days, and they didn't move at all. It wasn't until after we went back to New Zealand that they, that they started off again. Was there repercussions? Um... Yes, there was. And, and the, the, really the, the guy from North, who was in charge of Norfolk Island should have been demoted or because he, left, he kept us too late and uh, the whole thing was a debacle. You know. So was that the, the actual CEO of Norfolk Island that was holding you back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we felt he'd, you know, he'd let, let the whole thing down. Why the hell he kept us in in a in a rainy season, you know, when we'd, we'd be in trouble? What was his name? Uh, was it Bre um, not Aubrey Brecken? Um, I'll give you the name. <laughs> it's gone. Was he a little short guy? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Ron Cohen, wasn't it? Ron. Ron Cohen. No, it wasn't. But we were here, we he was in charge of our squadron at um, at at Fenilpai. He was CEO of Fenilpai at that stage. So when we came back, we had a bit of an inquisition on the whole thing, and uh, and and Mike Ike Cohen Ike Ike yeah he was very scathing of the whole exercise, and of course I think he might have got a bit of a kick because you know it was. The first, the first bunch of Mustangs to go, and we lost them all on the way up. So that was rather unglamorous. <laughs> I think they were, they might have got a bit. Of, I, I believe that the CEO of Fenilpai, who did the briefing, he got moved sideways. But the trouble was, he got moved to a beautiful job, taking over the Catalina at Hawaii. <laughs> The now we're being delivered. <laughs> Better not mention names. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't a. It didn't didn't worry us at all much. And those aircraft that you got onto the beach, that they were actually saved, weren't they? Well, the one my aircraft was the least damaged. I landed squarely, and I think well cast and skewed his a bit, and I believe. Uh, Pat Morpeth, I think he had landed on a bit of rough stuff and scored that bottom out a bit. But, but mine was the first back in the air again. The actual service party did land. That was the first service party. They landed. And uh, uh, I was on the. Um, I was with the second uh, uh, flight service party. We went through virtually without a, 
uh, an instance at all. Yeah. And, uh, so we virtually, uh, then it was decided that the first service party and, and the second service party would join together and stay put on on, and on to on to the river base. Okay. Americans took one look at the planes and said, push them over the cliff. Our lot said no. So we, we persuaded them all to haul the five up off the beach. And uh, so we set to work to repair them. And we'd never seen a workshop in, like they had in all our lives, especially the riggers and mechanics. And they had, they had everything you could even think about. Do all, do all tools. Uh, so we started putting them together and we had um, uh, five, the five flying uh, in six weeks. So how did you get them off the beach? Did you have to take the wings off and transport them by truck or...? Um, they must have. Uh, oh, the Americans had the equipment of uh, transporting things. Yeah. But then on the third one, was the third flight? Yeah, it must have been on the third flight. They um, landed on tight on the strip and Don Tudor being bigger than the Dover flight. A couple of them didn't know where to go. And one ran up the tail of the other. And, uh, so he ended up with virtually seven to repair. Yeah, and they virtually uh, we ended up having seven, and it was six that we had flying. So ended the ordeal of the first attempt to ferry fighters from New Zealand to Guadalcanal, a rather unsuccessful venture. But at least no one died, and of the seven fighters that had set off from New Zealand that day, Jeff Fiskin had made it back to Waipapakauri, Frank Ferrier had made it back to Norfolk, the Hudsons had got back to Norfolk Island, and three of the fighters that ditched on the beach were repaired and went back into service. Everyone had survived, and a lot of lessons were learned. And interestingly, Stan Quill, the squadron CO who had jumped out of his aircraft out by the reef, had been a regular service pre-war pilot in the RNZAF, but he'd never served outside of New Zealand till this day, and he became the first member of our Air Force to parachute from an aeroplane in the Pacific War Zone, and he was successful at it. So that 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 first uh, attempt to take the fighters up to the Pacific was a bit of a disaster. But after after that, they they continued on doing it right, and they would transport aircraft up with uh, you know a flight a flight of P-40s with a couple of Hudsons as escort, and they would go all over the Pacific doing that really. So. Um, I don't think they had too many losses on those transit flights afterwards. Not too many, apart from that disaster. Well, it was uh, they lost two coming back, bringing back the old aircraft. They lost two under in bad weather uh, right, between right. And I, and I, between Guadalcanal and Santa. I think they they were both lost. But that was again they thought they were the, the Hudsons pushed it on through the Merc, but the fighter pilots were a bit of a disadvantage that they're often there. Um, 
instrument flying isn't as it isn't as easy in a fighter, and some of the aircraft may not have had. You know, I imagine they tried to have all the instruments serviceable for those flights, but they did run into unexpected um, bad weather, and the Hudsons right. just punched through it. Right. And right. two P-40s disappeared somewhere before they came out the other side. It was quite quite a shame, but. Actually, an interesting thing is uh, there were losses with some of our Corsairs as well, and uh, particularly coming back to New Zealand. And uh, there was also one of the Venturas that was uh, escorting uh, fighters was lost as well. But an interesting thing is when that system was uh, set up, the RNZF was quite often asked to provide two Hudsons and later two Venturas to escort American uh squadrons as well who were moving about so they were doing the same thing with american fighters um around the pacific yeah that's true we uh we were sometimes asked to um, help help americans Some, sometimes they just at the last minute they'd say oh well for instance when a, one of the ventura squadrons were firing up new aircraft they i think one of their first jobs when they got to santo was i think it was two squadron but they were just asked if they could ferry up 30 american fighters you know act as escort to them they said right more they said oh, okay <laughs> Yeah. And I think they had a, whether they put on any extra um, life rafts or not, I don't know, but they just acted as a, uh, just, just lead, I suppose they must have discussed their cruising speeds and things, and um, you know, best cruising speeds, and they just followed them, and they, they wouldn't normally send up fighters unless they were fairly sure that the trip could be made in reasonably fair weather. Yeah. This was some yeah. desperate agency, and usually it was just rude, they were wanting to you know reinforce them or seen up these people and, and as long as they got there within a day or two was you know it was really bad weather they would just have to wait they, yep. did, they didn't okay. deliberately risk crews if they didn't have to yeah and uh, occasionally yeah. Uh, Kat, I see once or twice our uh, Catalinas were used for ferrying helping ferrying, you know just uh, often I think they used to send them ahead because they're right. so slow they couldn't go with the formation they'd go ahead uh, they'd probably take up a couple of hours before them and then they'd tootle on ahead and if at any point during the flight that uh, an aircraft got into trouble and had to ditch, the Kathleen would just turn around and it, would be, it wouldn't be too far away. Exactly. If, if the sea wasn't too rough, that is. <laughs> Otherwise, it could just yeah, circle that's... around it for ages until you know, ships got there. Yeah. But, but... Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, and, and the Hudson or, or Ventura did have a, enough fuel reserve usually to circle for quite a while until they could, until they could get maybe a, a, either an American or a New Zealand Catalina in to pick up the surviving... Probably generally it would or a seaplane of some sort. Yeah, it just depends how far away out they were. Yeah. Exactly. So they could always they could, usually within a few hours they could get something out there. And and that's why they started Americans started stationing high speed launches at a lot of the places. The same type that right. we, we received at the end of the war. Remember we got three from the ex American ones. Okay. when we relieved yep. them in the Solomons to take over. And, of course, the war ended then, so we never really used them much. But um, they, of course, on a rough sea, they couldn't go very fast anyway. You know, they are, but a, you've seen what a, a high-speed launch looks goes like in a rough sea. Not yep. so well. Yep. <laughs> Not so well, yeah. <laughs> they, they get a hell of a battering. Yep. Yep. This interview with David turned out to be a rather a long one on the history of the P-40 and RNZF service. So I'm going to cut this episode here as part one. Part two of the Duxbury Files on the P-40 and RNZF service will be coming soon. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.